Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Paul Weimer, and he'll be answering your questions on essential flies for Yellowstone. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Paul a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now and let other people know about the great content we're going to be covering tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Paul Weimer about essential flies for Yellowstone. Whether you want to catch your first permit in Belize, tame a giant tarpon in the Florida Keys, or wrestle a mint-bright Atlantic salmon in eastern Canada, Guild's Fly Fishing International's well-traveled booking team has the knowledge to make it happen. They consider trust to be the single most important aspect of their work. They only book locations that they know, meaning proven operations providing the right mix of great fishing, comfortable accommodation, and high integrity. Get in touch today to start planning your next fly fishing adventure. Visit flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. That's flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Before we introduce Paul, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for our drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Paul's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Paul's latest book, Favorite Flies for Yellowstone National Park, courtesy of Stackpole Books. And to see all the offerings Stackpole has, go to stackpolebooks.com and check them out. Now, here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. And the question, or sometimes I do two-part questions, that'll be about something that Paul and I talk about during the show. So just submit your answer along with your name and location in the text box on our homepage, and you may win Paul's book. It's the same form there that you use to ask questions during the show. So Pay attention, take notes, and type fast, and hopefully you'll win Paul's book at the end of the show. Yes, tonight is Paul Weimer. Paul has been a professional fly tire and designer, fly fishing guide, co-owner and manager of fly fishing shops and guide services, and is the coordinator of the Yellowstone Fly Fishing Volunteer Program. He is a contributing editor for Fly Fisherman Magazine and the author or co-author of several fly fishing books. Paul lives in Paradise Valley, Montana, where he guides fly anglers on the legendary trout waters that flow through Yellowstone National Park in southwestern Montana. 
Paul, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks for having me back, Roger. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a few shows now. I was just looking at this before we started. And let's see now. We've done fly fishing the upper Delaware, dry fly strategies, and now essential flies for Yellowstones. We're creating a little library for Paul Weimer here. <laughs> so that's, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, yeah, you just came out with this your latest book, Favorite Flies for Yellowstone National Park. And we're going to kind of key off that for tonight and have you share some of the flies out of the book and how to fish them, what they are, how they're designed. And Now, Tell us, before we get started and start talking Yellowstone-specific, now, all these flies are not your flies by design, right? You've chosen flies from other fly tires, correct, as well as your own? That's absolutely correct, yeah. It's basically, if I could look at at the Yellowstone region and ask people that I respect and people that I think are experts here, and, and I would go to them and say, hey, if you had one or two flies to fish Yellowstone, which ones would they be? And that's the flies that are included in the book. Yeah, yeah, cool. Some old favorites in here as they page through there. But that's exciting. So, well, let me ask you, how did you come up with who to ask? Or did you just have this in the back of your mind, or did you have some particular tires that you wanted to to talk to? Good question, Roger. Yes. Obviously, I had some, I mean, some of the flies come from people that are also guides that I've worked with and I know and trust. Some of them are from fly shops in the Yellowstone region that have been here a very long time. Certainly Richard Parks and Bob Jacklin and there's guys like that. You're not going to find people that know too much more about Yellowstone than those guys. So, so I, I pretty much just started yeah. with the guys like that and went from there. My gosh, Bob Jacklin, he's been here there for so long in that area. Yeah, he's an icon. He sure, uh, he sure oh, is. Man. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, good. Well, let's let's start talking about Yellowstone. And first of all, and you mentioned some of this in your book in the introduction, let's talk about what species are available in Yellowstone right now because this is kind of a changing scope, isn't it, of the types of fish that are available or as Yellowstone is trying to manage to the different kinds of fish. Can you kind of explain what's going on up there right now? Sure. Well, one of the things that makes Yellowstone so special is that it has all of its natural ecosystem from before 1492. It has native species, and it's got non-native species, too. So let's start with the native species. There's two native species of cutthroat trout. There's Yellowstone cutthroats. And there's West Slope cutthroats, which are found in the Madison River drainage. And then there's Arctic grayling and mountain whitefish. Before Columbus got here, that would have been the fish that you found in Yellowstone National Park. Now, since then, we've put in brown trout, brook trout, rainbow trout, and lake trout. And the rainbow trout has interbred with cutthroat trout and formed cutbow trout, which at least in the rivers and streams in the park, that's the greatest threat to to having the original strain of, of Yellowstone cutthroat trout that got there naturally. Is the park service or the fish and game trying to get rid of the, the non-native species? I know the lake trout has been an issue for, geez, I don't, I don't know, 30, 40 years now. 
And is, is that still an issue? And are they trying to get rid of the browns and the rainbows and so forth? Sure. So the lake trout obviously are still an issue. There's been tremendous work done there in Yellowstone Lake to really put a hurting on the lake trout population. They implanted fish with transmitters to figure out where the fish were spawning in the lake. They have gill net fleets that go out there and try to capture as many as possible. They were originally grinding up the lake trout they caught and dumping the carcasses on spawning sites because when that settles to the bottom, it gets rid of the oxygen and the eggs die. Now they're dropping pellets down there, and there's been a massive, massive effort to, to control those lake trout. And it's showing fruit. The Yellowstone cutthroat are starting to come back. But at its worst, 90% of the spawning Yellowstone cutthroat in Yellowstone Lake were eaten by lake trout. Wow. wow. Yeah, which is just crazy. Now, with the rest of the park, you can't really say that park wants to get rid of brown trout, rainbow trout, and brook trout. There are places where no one has any intention of doing that. Nobody wants to get rid of the rainbow trout or the brown trout in the Madison. So yeah. places or the Yellowstone in, in the park that that's further down where there's rainbows, there are some places that can be saved, though. Some places that, for instance, I moved here 10 years ago. And just as recently as 10 years ago, when I would fish the Lamar, I would never see a, a purebred rainbow trout. Never. It was almost all cutthroat, Yellowstone cutthroat, and occasionally you would find a cutthroat. These days, it's not uncommon to catch pure rainbow trout in the Lamar River system. So something like that's at its earliest stages, and we can still do something about it. The park then wants to do something about that. Hmm. Yeah. I think of it... Like, uh, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and there's all these brook trout streams that, streams that should be brook trout streams, but they have all kinds of other things in them. And some of those streams could have been saved back in the day if anglers thought of things the same way we think of them now and found them valuable enough to try to save them. And Yellowstone cutthroat trout need our help. And the only way there's going to be pure Yellowstone cutthroats and West Slope cutthroat trout in the park is if we take some actions to try to protect them in the streams which are their strongholds. And that's primarily for the Yellowstone cutthroat trout, the Lamar River system, Soda Butte, Slough, Pebble, those creeks there. Yeah, yeah. Now I can see how, like, the Madison, you know, you've got that run of rainbows coming up from Hebgen Lake, and that's outside the park. So you'd have to make agreements with the <laughs> connecting states and so forth to manage those fisheries as well, right? Yeah, and nobody's talking about doing that. Yeah. When you get into the discussion, Roger, protecting native fish, a lot of anglers get pretty freaked out. You know, <laughs> a lot of people, who wants to think about the Madison, you know, having all its brown trout and rainbow trout eradicated? So nobody wants yeah. to do that. So yeah. We're talking about very specific watersheds that we can try to keep intact just to ensure that this is the only place in the world where these fish are found. If we can try to just cut off this little tiny area and give Yellowstone cutthroat just a place where they can exist, that's what we're going to do. We're not trying to yeah. get rid of brown trout and rainbow trout. Heck, I, I love wild browns and wild rainbows as much as anybody else. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, good. So uh, we've gotten, well, basically two questions, pretty much the same from Alan Coop in uh, New Jersey and 
Chuck in Placerville, California. They're both asking about the effect of the flooding this year in Yellowstone and what effects it had on the river or what kind of future effects it may have on the bug life and the fish population. Do they know anything yet on the effects of the flooding? I've gotten to be friendly with some grad students that are doing work in particularly the northeast corner of the park, which was most affected. And it looks like the fish populations are down compared to pre-flood. Anglers have been reporting, though, excellent fishing. So the fishing is still good, even though the fish numbers are down. And I would say this. I mean, floods, in my view of floods, they're bad for the fishery short term, but long term, they're actually really, really good. You know, sometimes people think of them as in the same vein as, as a chemical spill. So the fish get wiped out and everything's done, but that isn't what the, a flood does. A flood is a natural thing. It's going to clean 500 years of gunk out of, out of between the rocks, which is going to improve the spawning gravel. It's going to improve habitat for aquatic insects. In the short term, yeah, hatches will, will most likely be affected. Trout populations will most likely be affected. On some of the streams in the northeast corner, my favorite poles no longer exist, which is a little hard to take. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, and I was up at Parks Fly Shop talking with Richard Parks, and he was specifically talking about the Yellowstone in Paradise Valley. And he said, you know, that river doesn't even know where it wants to be yet. And I, I think he's 100% right. It's sort of crazy the, the way the river has moved and changed. And I imagine over the next few runoffs, the rivers are going to continue to change as, as they sort of find balance as to where they want to be. Yeah, and that's a big river. <laughs> I mean, that's a big river. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's going to go where it wants to go, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, and I hear you about the kind of cleansing because like the Colorado River below Glen Canyon Dam, you know, and further down, there's that 15-mile stretch of of water just below the dam that's good trout fishing. But after that, it's it turns to the native species down below. But, you know, that's part of the thing that didn't happen for a long time was any flooding because it was controlled by the dam. And I think they had to start doing some controlled flooding for just the reasons you were talking about, you know, to bring yeah. it back naturally because it just the sand was building up and it wasn't getting washed out, all kinds of things. But, yeah, yeah absolutely. so... Um, yeah, I hear it's you. A natural about that. process. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. Did that affect you at all? Where you live there? Well, it sure did. Oh, <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, so I was hired to run the Yellowstone Volunteer Fly Fishing Program in March, and of course the program had to be canceled. the The park's infrastructure in the northeast corner was devastated, like unimaginably devastated. A friend of mine, Bill Cosmer, and I went hiking, trying to hike up into a stream where the road had been destroyed, and it was like a scene from The Walking Dead or something. Like it looked like civilization used to be there, and just you know, you get to a place and the road would be sheared off the side of a cliff for for 50 yards, wow. and just really crazy devastation. The park did an amazing job to put in. A road, the old Gardner Road, it was a two-lane stagecoach road to connect Mammoth and Gardner to allow visitors into the park. And, and remember, there's people that live year-round in Cook City. They need a way to get in and out. 
but yeah, it was pretty bad. The damage to the roads and everything was, was crazy. And of course, just perfect luck on my part, I, I decided, all right, 2022 is the year that I'm going to guide less in Montana and focus on the park. And <laughs> Doors yeah. slam shut, right? <laughs> yeah, that didn't work out as well as I had planned. Yeah, so you can get in and, and out of the park now up there, not on the uh, the old roads, but, well, on the old roads, it sounds like, the really old roads. Uh, but they right. haven't rebuilt the main highways yet, I take it. Well, the, the, road be between, the road between Gardner and Mammoth, I don't believe will ever be rebuilt. There's nothing there, Roger. It's gone, oh, wow. and there's no reason why a one in five a five hundred year flood just means there's a one in five hundred chance of it happening every year. So yeah. you know, with the time and the the resources it would take to rebuild that road, I just can't imagine they would do it. I think they're mm. probably going to try to make the road they just built better and stick with that. You know, some of the, what I'm saying here is just guesses. I obviously don't know what they're your final plans are but at least yeah, for yeah. this upcoming season people will be able to get into the park through the gardener gate yeah okay okay let's talk a little bit about fill us in on the fishing regulations because there are some uh, pretty strict regulations in the park that fly fishers should know of when fishing there right there are so you're not allowed to wear felt boots in the park you have to have rubber bottom boots you know that's to stop the spread of invasive species you're not allowed to use lead in the park, so you're not allowed to use lead split shot, or you're not allowed to have lead underbodies in your nymphs or your streamers. You're not allowed to use barbed hooks, so you can have fly boxes with, with flies in them that have barbs, but they have to be crushed down before they're tied to your leader. You're not allowed to have articulated flies, so no flies with two hooks, you know, the big giant streamers that are popular these days. You can't fish those. One of the things people don't always realize is is the fishing time. You're allowed to fish sunrise to sunset, basically, so no after dark. Not that you'd want to be running around in a yeah. place with <laughs> grizzlies, you know, yeah. grizzlies and everything else, but you got to quit fishing at dark. And one thing that isn't a specific fishing regulation, but you're not allowed to have dogs. I was surprised. My, my friend John Campbell and I were running Madison in the park, this past fall, and we're fishing, looking for some lake run fish. And there's a guy walking around with a dog. I could have sworn I heard a dog barking. And, you know, dogs in Yellowstone National Park, I think it's, yeah, it'd have to stay a certain distance within a paved road. I forget if it's 100 feet or something like that from a paved road. And every once in a while, you'd be surprised that I'll be fishing somewhere. You see it sometimes in the Lamar, there'll be people down there with dogs. No dogs. Yeah, yeah, and those dogs are going to get hurt one way or the other. Uh, For sure. Just recently, some friends of mine, and I tell them, well, I tell a lot of my friends, (laughs) keep your dogs on leash up, because I live up in the mountains here, you know, 50% of the time, and uh, the animals, the deer and stuff are always around. And I said, you got to keep your dogs leashed up. Well, they went hiking, and they didn't have their dog on leash, ran off after a buck, and that buck turned around and picked that dog up in the air with its rack and threw it wow. across the forest. And, no kidding. Uh, yeah, so he had, uh, that dog had like, I don't know, five or six puncture wounds wow. on the side from that buck. 
And uh, That's crazy. We didn't even ask how much it cost at the vets, but uh, you know that cost a lot of money to stitch him back up. Uh, luckily, right. luckily, none of the tines went into his organs or anything. You know, it was all kind yeah. of just in his skin. But, yeah, that dog paid for it big time. And I'd never seen that or heard of that before, but it makes sense. You know, what's the buck going to do? If something's chasing it, it's going to turn around and... and Take care of business, and it did. So, Believe it or not, yeah. Roger, I have a 150-pound English Mastiff, and we got charged by a mule deer doe. A mule deer oh, doe. Oh, really? Yeah. And, yeah and I, I had seen it, so I put, took my leash out and put her on a leash. And this mule deer doe had a little fawn, and it comes running, and it ran at us. And when it got wow. within, I don't know, 10 yards, it went up on its hind legs, and it's kicking its front legs. And oh, my protector. Oh. My protector, this 150-pound monster that I fed and cared for since she was eight weeks old, nearly dislocated my arm trying to run away. <laughs> Not towards the doe. She ran yeah. as fast as she could in the other direction. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to mess with that. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to ask you, you know, how is the doe protecting itself? But, yeah, that makes sense, you know. Yeah. Uh, no antlers, so it's going to use those paws, and, yeah, that could uh, – that's with you, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. My, my Mastiff had no desire to find out. Yeah. <laughs> little, that Mastiff's a pussy, huh? <laughs> she certainly is, yes. She, she's a lover, not a fighter. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> well, let's take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, we'll answer the next question. Is uh, And I'm sure you'll have a good answer to this one. Have you ever had any close encounters with grizzly bears? While fishing Yellowstone. So we'll answer that question right after the break. So hang tight and be right back. Musky Town is so much more than a musky fly shop. Whether you're a musky fly fishing guide, an experienced musky hunter, or just getting into predators on the fly, wherever life's adventures take you, Musky Town's proven lineup helps you be more successful on the water. They have rods, reels, lines, and flies for musky, pike, and bass. Most of their flies are tied in-house and they fish them at every possible opportunity. So they know what works, why it works, and exactly what you need to put big fish in the net. Sit back, relax, enjoy legendary fly shop service, and please let them know if there's anything that they can help you with. Next time you think of Muskie, go to Muskie Town. That's muskytown.com, or call them at 763-312-6012. Again, muskytown.com. 763-312-6012. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Paul Weimer about essential flies for Yellowstone. If you'd like to ask Paul a question, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and use that Q&A box to send us your question. So, Paul, I always ask my guests, you know, at this point in the show, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? And I know you just finished this book up this past year. What else you got going on? Well, I just finished helping create a, a website for the Yellowstone Fly Fishing Volunteer Program. So I have that up and running, and, and we're just finalizing our schedule of volunteers for 2023. So that's kept me very busy recently. It's been really cold here and snowy, but I'm still sneaking down to Depew Spring Creek at least once a week, no matter how cold it is, even if I just set a fire in the warming hut and drink bourbon for a half hour. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> all right. <laughs> it's, it's 10 minutes from the house, yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
But the, the volunteer fly fishing program right now is keeping me busy. What do the volunteers do? Sure. The program lasts about six weeks. If anyone wants to check it out, you can go to www.yffvp.com. So Yellowstone Fly Fishing Volunteer Program.com. And you can see the website, and it explains all this stuff. So there's Yellowstone is huge. There's so much water there, and the biologists, the fisheries biologists, have limited time and limited resources to visit all these waters. So in 2002, they started a program where volunteers from, from all over the place would come in, and they call it Fly Fishing for Science. So I'm the coordinator of the programs. I set up with volunteers a meeting place, and I pick them up, and, and we go, and, and today we're going to sample a certain section on Slough Creek and we record the fish that we catch, where they're caught with GPS coordinates and the types of fish they are, and we give all this data to the fisheries biologist. Todd Cole, who's the, the head of fisheries for Yellowstone National Park, he's the one who tells us where he wants us to be and what he'd, he'd like us to do, and then I facilitate getting the volunteers there to do that. Now are these and then we just local? fish. Are these locals primarily no, that are volunteering? No, they're from all over the country. In fact, most of them oh. aren't local. Oh, wow, wow. And they, yeah. they'll just work for how long, a few days, a few weeks, or what's their usual stay? So in the past, they've gone for five days. We, Fly Fisherman Magazine, Josh Bergen wrote a story about the program, and the response from that was overwhelming. So I received hundreds of emails of people that wanted to be a part of it. To try to get as many people in the program as possible, we're limit them this year to an either two or three day stint. So you come and either you're going to come out to Yellowstone anyways, and you make us part of your vacation, or you come for your two or three days and we do the work. The work, Roger, by the way, is fly fishing. So like, right? Hard work, yeah. Right. It's not exactly like you're in a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is not bad work. So, yeah, and it's a great program. The goal, the program's goal, is to preserve and enhance the native fish in Yellowstone National Park. I'm proud to be a part of it, and it's a really cool thing. Good, good. Well, sounds like a, a, a great thing to be part of and to contribute to. So thanks, thanks to you and all those volunteers out there to make the park better fishery. So that's, that's terrific. Okay, let's jump back in here. I promised I'd ask you this question. Jerry Sherman in Lexington, Kentucky, he says, um, or no, I'm sorry, Greg in Memphis, <laughs> Tennessee, said, have you had any close encounters with grizzly bears while, while fishing in Yellowstone? And that's always been a concern for people fishing there. I mean, it should be, right? It should be, yeah. I say in the book, it's not something you should be afraid of, but it's something you certainly should be aware of. And Greg, I believe my blood type is bacon, because I've had more experience, <laughs> more close encounters with grizzly bears than half of the native-born Montana residents I know. There's something about me, 
my wife and I were hiking one time, and we had just had a bear incident, and this old cowboy came up on a horse, and I was talking to him about it, and I said, there's something about me. It must be bad luck, and I told him about all these different bear stories. He looked at me and says, you're still alive. I think you're good luck. So that's the glass yeah. half full kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. the most, the one that stands out the most is my wife and I were fishing Slough Creek below the campground. I went through some willows and through the other side, and at about 30 yards, a sow grizzly stood up on her back legs and stared right at me. So I backed out of there. My wife and I <laughs> got out of there. We went up on a hill. We looked at her through binoculars. We she, she had cubs, and we were leaving anyways. That's not really the story. One week later, we go back to the exact same spot. I mean, what are the chances, right? There's only so many grizzlies. So we're fishing, and we hadn't been there very long. And we're taking a shortcut through the sagebrush, and there's willows again. And we kick out this big charcoal-colored wolf. And he comes flying out past us close, like 20 yards. And he ran right at us before we had a chance to move. And we were like, wow, yeah, that was sort of cool. And then hmm, less than five minutes later, several hundred yards away on the far side of Slough Creek, we saw a grizzly bear coming down. And he he sort of danced around on top on top of this high bank over slough and just staring at us and he turned around to leave i thought and i actually nudged my wife and i was like that's right you sissy run away <laughs> you know and well he wasn't running away he was looking for an easier path down down the bank and he flew down that bank and flew across slough creek and started running at, straight at us and was cutting the distance fast I had never seen a grizzly anywhere act that way, that, that aggressive. I mean, his ears were flattened. This guy was, he was ready to come. So I said to my wife, there's a little hill behind us. I said, people from the road might be able to see. I think this is about to happen. You know, get your bear spray out. Don't run. Let's walk and try to get up on top of this little hill. And I looked back. <laughs> over my wife's shoulder as we're not running but moving briskly to get on top of this hill and that grizzly was now probably at 40 yards 35 yards over her shoulder and just coming and we get to the top of the hill and I spin around and I have my bear spray ready and my wife is ready and all of a sudden nothing and the bear just disappeared <laughs> I don't know. You're here to tell the story. (laughs) My closest guess is that he crossed right where that wolf had been and either got distracted by the wolf scent or most likely that wolf came out of the willows for the same reason that bear was coming after us. There was a kill in there. So we climbed out the rest of the way out out of slough. And when we got up near our car, there just happened to be a ranger sitting there. And I told them the story. And they actually closed that section of slough for the next two weeks. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, there was yeah. most likely a kill down there. Uh, well, that's that was exciting. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> and trust me, uh, Roger. There's a lot more than that. that that's, well, that's, yeah. we'll just leave it at that one. Well, it's funny, but this year I have bird feeders out on my deck up here in, in Bailey, <laughs> Colorado, and and. I've been up here for 10 years, and I've had bird feeders out there all the time and never had a problem, you know, with bears. So this year, somebody had knocked down those feeders a couple of times, and then my neighbors caught the bear on their 
camera outside their house and stuff. So I said, oh, well, I better start bringing those things in. So I'm back here in my office, and it got dark, and I go, and it's 9 o'clock, and I go, oh, I forgot to take the bird feeders down. And so I turn the deck lights on, and I look out there, and, and there's no – I'm looking for a bear, right? I'm looking for one. And there's no bear there. Well, the bird feeders are just to the left of my sliding doors past my grill, right? Well, it's kind of a blind spot. And I figure anything <laughs> big enough I'd see over there. That is a corner of my deck where the two railings come together and make a corner, and then the bird feeder holders are bolted onto that. I walk out the door, turn left, and I'm three feet from a black bear <laughs> who's sitting, wow. sitting on the corner of the rail by the bird feeders. And, I mean, we're looking right at each other, you know. I wasn't as calm as you were. I said, oh, blank, and ran into the house and shut the door and locked it. <laughs> I don't know where he went. I think he dropped off, which was like one story down to the ground. And I think he just dropped off of there. But I think wow. he, I probably scared him as much as he scared me because I don't think he'd sure. been that close to a human before either. But anyway. That's great. That it's always a great story. With, yeah. Always a great story when everybody walks away happy and healthy. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, well, good. Well, let's talk fishing. Jerry uh, Sherman asked from Lexington, Kentucky, says, the eternal question, how does someone not familiar with the park find less pressured waters that are away from those that are constantly fished? Always people wanting to know that. Jerry, that answer is the same whether you're talking about, you know, a stream in Yellowstone National Park or a stream in New Jersey try to walk farther than everybody else does. Most of the crowded, and I, I would put that in air quotes, crowded fishing in Yellowstone are the easy spots where, where you can watch people fishing from the road. It's another thing, too. I, I hear people talk about, oh, the park's so crowded these days. Like I'm always thinking, like, have you never fished the Green Drakes on Penn's Creek, right, or, <laughs> or gone to yeah. see the Sulphur Hatch on the upper Delaware River? Like, crowded in Yellowstone is very uncrowded back east. Yeah. You know, I've never seen it, certainly, when you couldn't find a spot. But the truth is, most of the little tributaries to the famous creeks you've heard of all have fish in them. You know, you can get a gazetteer and look at Yellowstone. And if you're fishing and you're fishing with other people that didn't come with your group, there's a reason that's happening. It's because you want that to happen, because it, there's lots of places you could go where you're mm -hmm. not going to see people or very few people. You know, there's lots of streams that are, are down big, you know, big canyons that are accessible if you're in good shape, you know, things yeah. like that. So walk back and get away from people. And you figure most of the people in Yellowstone, you know, they never leave the roads. They never leave the boardwalks. And right. if you just get out right. and walk, it is a barren place when it comes to people. Yeah, all it takes anywhere, like you say, is about 100 yards. And then you just left <laughs> at least 50% of the people behind you. Another 100 <laughs> right. yards, and there's another 30%. And yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. A couple of questions about, because a lot of people know you from, the, you just mentioned it, the upper Delaware on out east where you used to live and fish quite extensively. And George, Florida, and Kevin in Pennsylvania wanted to know, did any of that translate out here to Yellowstone, like the flies, the strategy that you used in Pennsylvania, and maybe even fly selections, as, as Kevin was interested in? Any of that translate out to Yellowstone? 
It certainly does. You hear this, and I've probably said this to you before, Roger, but you hear this about a lot of, a lot of fisheries. People will say, well, if you can catch fish there, you can catch them anywhere. In most places, that isn't true. But if you can consistently, day after day, catch fish on dry flies in the Upper Delaware River, you absolutely can catch fish anywhere. So <laughs> the, the, the lessons you learn from that are very applicable. And even downstream presentations, which aren't often necessary in Yellowstone National Park, but the times where they are, where you're fishing flat water and, and the fish are picky, that those skills that you learn on some eastern fisheries of fishing, quartering a dry fly downstream are, are huge assets. When it comes yeah. to, to like flies and everything, the major differences are this. When I was living in the eastern United States, my go-to tippet for dry flies was 6X. That's what I fished probably 90% of the time. And now here, I never even fished that on the spring creeks. My go-to tippet is 4X for dry flies. And with nymphs, it could be 3X. And if I'm fishing to Pew Spring Creek with a fisher or more selective, you know, there I usually go with 5X. And bigger flies that I was joking with some friends that there's something about Western fly tires, but they want to put legs on everything. So, like, they'll strap legs on a worm. You know, <laughs> every fly pattern can be approved with rubber legs. So yeah. the fly selection J- Jumping is... San Juan worm or something, huh? <laughs> right, right. I can just see it in my mind right now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Hey, I want half the royalties on that, Roger. So, <laughs> um, so I would say, generally speaking, the flies in the eastern streams are more refined, more delicate, and out here, they're gaudy, they're, they're more colorful, they're more heavily dressed for the more turbulent waters. But, yeah, there's lots of lessons that you can take from eastern fishing to learn here. And in all those years, you know, it's just great to have a reservoir of things in the back of your head. Sometimes I'll be fishing somewhere in Yellowstone and, and something won't be working, and, and my mind will flash back to a day on Penn's Creek 15 years ago and something that worked there, and, and that might help me there too. Yeah, good, good. James in uh, Ammon, Idaho asked, how do you arrange your fly boxes for an average day on the stream through the various seasons? Sure, James. My fly boxes are, I don't know if I ever exactly arranged them. Once, once, you know, (laughs) late winter, they start to look somewhat presentable. I would say, so I have various fly boxes that are attractor nymphs, hatch-matching nymphs, early season flies for the park, like which are usually large foam dry flies like chubbies, and then later season flies for the park, which are mostly attractors like royal wolves and humpies and things like that, and then summer terrestrial boxes. The only suggestion I would have is I tend to take to keep at least a few flies from an aquatic insect hatch that just ended and bring a fly box from a hatch I expect to begin. So you don't know necessarily when the PMDs will start. Maybe I have a few blue-winged olives in my pack, but when we get closer to PMD time, I'll have my whole PMD box even before I see one, just when I know they're about ready to show up. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, organizing flies seems to be a challenge for everybody. <laughs> you know, we've sure. talked about it a lot on the shows, and there's all kinds of methods 
And then there's the uh, no method at all strategy, <laughs> which is take everything, right. 40 pounds of fly boxes with you. Yeah. Um, you, you may not remember. The... <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. going to say, Roger, you may not remember, but that's me. Remember? Yeah. I, I bring yeah. like 40 fly boxes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You're. You're one of those on the list, right? Yeah, I think we talked yeah. about that before. Yeah, yeah, because sure enough, if you don't bring it, then that's what you'll need, right? Yeah, so, <laughs> that, that's uh, what I tell myself. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so James also asked. He says, "Great fly tires, Harrop, Matthews, Lawson, all of them had pet materials that were consistently incorporated in their flies: CDC biots, deer hair, and grouse. What are some of your favorite materials that you've incorporated into your?" life cycle patterns. I love CDC for dry fly patterns. My true form flies that I developed, their wings are CDC. Most of the emerger flies I use are, have CDC in them. I, you know, I, I've been working with CDC in, into my flies for probably 25 years. I also like snowshoe rabbit foot, which isn't as popular here as it is in the east, I don't believe. It makes nice wings that are buoyant and float very, very well. I also will take that sometimes, and you can actually spin snowshoe rabbit feet fibers and trim them to shape. So if you want to make like an old cat scale fly, like a rat-faced McDougal, which has basically the wings and hackle of an Adams, but a body of spun and, and clipped hair, you can make that fly with snowshoe rabbit feet, and it, it's very buoyant and floats really well. Those are probably two of my favorite materials. And beaver dubbing for dry flies, I almost always tie exclusively with beaver when it comes to dry flies. Nice, nice. Good. Matt Rossett, uh, New Mexico, want to know how you got in into production fly tying and contract fly designing. Wow, about 25 years ago, I guess, I got my first job working for West Branch Anglers in upstate New York. Along the Delaware River, I, I ran the second half of their operation, which included Wild Rainbow Outfitters and Wild Rainbow Lodge and some cabins on the main stem of the Delaware. And I was tying flies, and the owner made it part of my job requirement to tie flies while I was at the shop if it was slow. So I, I did that. And then he offered to pay me extra over the winter if I would help fill the shop bins with more flies. And I did that. And guides would come into the shop and see me there tying and they would say hey I got this pattern and I'm too busy you know would you mind tying me a dozen of these so I started tying for some guides and then I got up the guts one day to go to the Deddy fly shop in Roscoe New York and talk with Mary Deddy so the Deddy fly shop I mean this is the oldest continually family-owned fly shop in the United States and the Deddy's Mary and her parents Walt and Winnie and now with her grandson Joe and his fiance Kelly, they helped develop an entire school of American-style dry flies. So the first time I walked in there and, and asked Mary if I could tie for her shop and I had to show her some of my flies was, was pretty scary. But uh, Mary liked my flies, and so I started tying for the Diddy shop. And by the end, I was tying throughout the winter, oh, probably eight hours a day, six days a week, <laughs> something like that. And then when we opened Border Water Outfitters in Hancock, New York, Montana Fly Company was our main fly supplier, and they had seen some of my patterns, and they asked me if they could carry them. 
So that's how I ended up getting tied in with them. Ah, wow. Long journey <laughs> and a lot of work <laughs> in between. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah. Good. Well, thanks yeah. for sharing that. Yeah. Next question is from Steve Bourne in Madison, Wisconsin. Steve's been on my show a couple times. We talked about the Hex Hatch, Midwestern Streams, and also the Driftless area of the Midwest, which is a unique fishery. But Steve asks, over the past few decades, we've turned to more realistic patterns and life stages of insects in our efforts to fool Yellowstone country trout. Is there still a major place for the old traditional winners of prior years, the Cumpies, H&L variants, Wolfs, and, and more? There absolutely is. I say in the Yellowstone book that I believe the Yellowstone National Park has a royal wolf season. You know, when they stop, <laughs> when they start getting tired of looking at chubbies and 8 million foam hoppers, that kind of stuff works great. And <laughs> I, when I was interviewing Bob Jacklin for the book, we decided to talk over the telephone. He's in West Yellowstone. I'm, I'm in Paradise Valley. We're not exactly close. We were talking over the telephone, and we got cut short. We were going to reconnect, and maybe a week later, I got this package in the mail from Bob, which was just super nice. He sent me his DVD, and he sent me all these old papers from from his fly shop about old flies that worked well in the park. And he had a bunch of stuff in there about the woolly worm. And when I, I stopped in to Bob's shop to, to get some samples to photograph for the book, I told him I was going to include the woolly worm. And he looked at me, and just his head was just nodding. He just sort of smiled, a real sly smile. And he was very happy to hear the woolly worm was going to make it into the book. And, yeah, a lot of those old flies that have been around forever, the fish don't see them as often, as crazy as that sounds. They tend to eat them better. And I fish a lot of that stuff, wolves and, and humpies and, and all that kind of stuff. They work real well. Yeah, the woolly worm. I think that was probably the second fly I ever tied when I was a kid, you know? Me too. <laughs> I do remember the first fly that I tied and caught a fish on, and it was a mosquito, believe it or not. Awesome, large, yeah. Largemouth bass on it. Yeah, I still remember that, yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think you had a couple of others in the book, right, that are kind of traditional favorites from the past, right? Like, uh, yeah, well, you got the roller wolf, the woolly worm, and then humpies, right? Parachute? Yeah, the spruce Adams? fly, the last fly in the book. I mean, that's about as old school as it gets for a streamer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, most people would look at that today and wonder, Who, what is that? You know, is that a salmon fly? <laughs> <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Well, since you brought up the spruce fly, why don't you talk about that fly? And it's the last fly in the book. Now, I, I know you kind of did the book in order by seasons, uh, but that's there's a lot of crossover there I'm expecting, right? There is. The main reason I put the spruce fly last is because, like you said, I tried to take it from spring through fall oh. in Yellowstone. Obviously, I was flipping back and forth between my headset and my speakers, and so I, I didn't hear what you said the past uh, 30 seconds or so. That's all right. I didn't say much. I was mostly confused. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we want to, yeah, talk about the spruce fly. Yeah. Sure. So the reason the spruce fly is the last fly in the book is I was in Big Sky Anglers in West Yellowstone and was talking to a, a young guy named Michael Delfino who works for them. And I, I told him about the book I was writing and about the flies I was looking to include. And, and just like, 
the flies they push people to in, in the fly shop. And, and he sort of got this gleam in his eye, and he goes, hey, there's a fly we don't even put out anymore, but everybody likes this thing. And he goes into the back of the store, and he comes out with a spruce fly. I had <laughs> seen a spruce fly, and I hadn't seen one in a very long time. My dad and I, when I was young, we were members of the John Kennedy Trout Unlimited chapter in Blair County, Pennsylvania was named after John because he was one of the founders of the chapter and a great conservationist. And he also was like famous for catching a hundred fish on this little creek with a spruce fly. So I hadn't heard about it for a long time. But a lot of the guys and girls that are fishing the, the Madison for lake run fish in the fall, they'll swing it. And it's just an old-school streamer, you know, a feather wing streamer from the days before we tied half a dead rabbit to every hook, you know, <laughs> when, when you were just yeah. looking for a way, way to get some movement and make it look alive, and it still works great. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. And to fish that, you just fish it like a, any other streamer as far as technique goes? Yeah, you can strip it, Roger. A lot of guys these days in the park are, are swinging it. So they're they're kind of okay. heavy, heavy tip it. Oftentimes with spay rods, and they're they're rolling it out there and letting their line belly and they're swinging it down through the the currents. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that's the way a lot of people are fishing that you know the Madison during the the spawn, the run in the fall. Sure. I should say. Yeah, yeah. So let's work our way through. Then springtime, we do have some questions in the summer and the fall about certain flies that came in. But what are a couple of springtime flies that are, are go-to flies for you uh, that you have in your book that you'd like to talk about? Obviously, the chubby, I think when the season gets open in Yellowstone and by the time that runoff starts to subside and you can start fishing, I probably have a chubby tied on until August and sometimes even later. That's mm. just deadly in the park and then early in the season when when the water's off color instead of fishing with a strike indicator i'll still use a chubby and, and i'll drop a a big stonefly nymph pattern like a rubber legs or one of matt minch's fly patterns in the book some some of his stonefly imitations that that were based off of joe brooks designs things like that are pretty big early in the year unless you're fishing something like the fire hole where you can start to see the white miller caddis early in the season in the fire hole. You can have blue-winged dollos, and, and because that water's so warm due to the hot springs dumping in, you might even have PMDs, and the fire hole sort of its, its own little thing earlier in the year. Yeah, yeah. So you're fishing, when you're fishing the chubby Chernobyl, are you, uh, you said sometimes you're dropping something off the back, or are you just fishing it as a single fly a lot of times? I'll fish it as a single fly a lot of times, but I'm almost, I'm often dropping something off the back of it. Whether, you know, once we get later in the spring, I'll drop smaller dry flies off the back of it. And earlier in the spring, I'm usually dropping nymphs off of it. Yeah. Any particular nymphs? Well, earlier, those large stonefly nymphs. um, And and Hmm. I also, I fish a lot of Pertagon nymphs not just in the park, but outside of it. You know, that fly pattern that's been derived from competition fly fishers, is it's just really, really effective, and I fish a lot of those. Mm-hmm. Okay. The We did have a question from John in Denver. He said, 
For the past several years, I fished the upper Yellowstone in the vicinity of Buffalo Ford between July 20th and 30th. Can you talk a bit about your favorite patterns to use that in that time of the season, uh, including Drake and PMD patterns? I don't, so I don't typically fish much beyond 2 to 3 p.m., but how is the fishing around dusk in that? Uh, is there a spinner fall? Lots of questions in that. <laughs> uh, Harrop's, Renee Harrop's Green Drake hair wing pattern is phenomenal. It's by far my, my favorite pattern for imitating green drakes in the park. When it comes to PMD patterns, I I still like little either Comparaduns or sparkle duns off with deer hair, like they're traditionally tied, but I also like CDC Comparaduns. One of the weird things about living in, in the West compared to the East is that nobody fishes till dark here, right? <laughs> like when I'm guiding on the Delaware, half the time we wouldn't even get off the water till an hour after dark. Now, in the park, you're not allowed to do that because nobody wants you to get lost or get eaten. But even fishing till dusk, I, I've seen some of those, particularly the, the September ones, the Hecubas, the, the, the mackerel drakes, I've seen tremendous hatches of those as you're getting closer to dusk. You know, particularly in years when the water is low and it's a little bit warmer, you know, those mayflies and other aquatic insects, they, they want to hatch in the coolest part of the day. And, and sometimes once the temperature starts to drop right in the evening, the fishing can be great. And usually you'll have it to yourself, you know, particularly that northeast corner of the park where unless you're driving to Cook City or, or something like that, there aren't a lot of places to eat dinner. So if, if you stay until dusk on, on Slough, Lamar, or, or Sotheby, you may have it to yourself by the end. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I noticed one of the, the flies you included in your book was Jacqueline's PMD Comparadon. So, yeah. you know, John was asking about PMD patterns, so that, that must be a winner there, huh? For sure. that That's a great pattern. Yeah, and designed to really handle a little more turbulence that we generally have in western streams compared to eastern streams. It's a great fly. Yeah, yeah. When you're fishing that type of fly, a Comparadon, any particular, are you dropping something off the back of that, or do you usually fish that as a single fly? I'm almost always, when, when I'm fishing Comparadons or or even standard hackled flies like Royal Wolves, things like that, I almost always fish them as a standalone fly. You certainly can drop small bead heads and things like that off the back of them. And if you're fishing a PMD hatch, there's certainly nothing wrong with dropping a little pheasant tail off the back of, of a you know a PMD imitation to so you're imitating all stages of the hatches. But generally speaking, if there's fish rising during a specific hatch, I'm trying to catch them on top if I, if I have that option. Scott, uh, this is kind of a where and when question. Uh, Scott in Michigan, he says. Planning a trip to Montana next August, not having been there before, what rivers would you should we concentrate on and what flies should we have for early August? We will be driving from Michigan and we'll be having drift boats with us. Early August, you know, that should be pretty great everywhere if we have a low snowpack, which right now snowpack is looking good, but we've learned from past years that that can change if it's suddenly 80 degrees in May. But Early August is usually pretty good, so it depends on where you want to float. If you really want to use your drift boat, 
I'm guessing you do since you're bringing it here. You can't use drift boats in Yellowstone National Park, so you're going to be using it somewhere other than there. The Yellowstone River is a great one. The Bighorn's a great one. The Missouri is one of my favorites. It, it starts to get a little weedy later in the summer, but hopefully uh, by that point in time it should be fine. Places like like, like that. The, the Madison, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, basically, you know, all of July and at least the very beginning of August, you should pretty much have a lot of waters at your disposal. It's really about where you want to fish. Yeah, yeah. The um, next question is from Kurt Finlayson, and Kurt was a guest on my show too. And he, I'm trying to, we did a show with him. I'm just trying to pull it up here so I can see it. This was, uh, come on there, computer. There we go. Uh, yeah, this is back in 2019. But he was a member of the Fly Fishing USA team, and uh, we did a show on fighting and landing trout. So that might be a show you guys might want to look up after tonight as well. But he says, what flies do you suggest for uh, Yellowstone Lake, and how did the cutthroat move through the season, and how does it affect the flies they will eat? For example, are they trying to find warm water most of the time? So are they in the shallows or are, and are more surface-oriented, or are they trying to find protection from birds of prey, and, and are they in deeper water, and are opportunistic to food items presented deeper? That's a very good and involved question. <laughs> that, there's a lot in there. Yellowstone Lake, there's some really cool caddis hatches there. They get a fly called the traveling sedge, which is this real, real big caddis that will go and run across the surface of the water, and the gulpers in there will just nab them. I tell a story under the Goddard Caddis section in the new book about John Campbell, his first fishing trip there, and John's use of a Goddard Caddis on Yellowstone Lake and how effective that was. Of course, streamers, any lakes, I've had good success fishing drop-offs in areas like that with a couple of fast-thinking nymphs like Pertagons beneath an indicator, just like you're fishing a stream. When it comes to the cutthroat moving to find warm water, I assume you're I assume he's talking about within Yellowstone Lake, or is he talking about cutthroat in general? Do you think, Roger? Well, I mentioned uh, Yellowstone Lake at the beginning of the question, so I'm I'm assuming that that's what he was talking about. Yeah, Yellowstone. Let's go Lake, with that. Yeah. yeah, Yellowstone Lake is very very cold. It's one of the lakes in the world that if you fall in there in, in August, you're going to get hypothermia in a couple of minutes. So it's not exactly that temperature is a problem. The fish in the summer months will hang close to the shores early in the morning, and as that sun gets going, they'll push off into deeper water. And I think, Kurt, you're right. You know, Some of that has to do with being afraid of overhead predators. Now, one of the things I've learned as part of the Yellowstone fly fishing program is that when the Yellowstone cutthroat population tanked in Yellowstone Lake, so did the osprey population. So there used to be all these spawning pairs of ospreys in the lake that aren't found there anymore because they didn't have food to eat, so they moved on. And so mm -hmm. there aren't probably as many birds of prey there that, that used to be, but as those Yellowstone cutthroat come back, those birds will move back too. 
in any fish, whether they're in a lake or a river and creek, it always has to be a balance, right, of, of where can I sit in this water and eat enough food to survive, yet have cover from overhead predators. And the ones that don't work that out don't get to live very long. They get eaten by somebody. So it's always going to be that balance. You know, look for little foam lines and, and any sort of cover like that that you can find as well. Another question here by Salmo in Vermont asks, he says, two buddies and I fished the northeast corner of the park during the third week in September. We fished the Lamar, Soda Butte, and, of course, Slough Creek. What fly should we always have for this adventure? We're well, talking certainly fall. The, yep. Right. Certainly Drake mackerel imitations, the fly that is also called a Hecuba. Some people will also call it Western Green Drake, even though it's very different from the Drunella species of Western Green Drakes that hatch earlier in the year. But those Hecubas can be very important on those creeks. I would certainly have those. You're in a transition period there. Terrestrials can continue to be working. I would definitely have ants and beetles and little things like that. By the time we get into the third week in September, the fish may have seen about every hopper in the world. So I would also maybe start thinking about attractor dry flies. That's when I would throw some humpies and royal wolves and things like that. Okay, okay. Ben McCollum, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, wrote in, and he says, we visit Yellowstone every year in late September, same time of year as Selma. One of our favorite pursuits during this time is swinging soft hackles on the fire hole in Madison. It's extraordinarily effective and fun, also relaxing after a hard day of more intense dry fly and nymph presentations. The prolific actions on those rivers in late September seem to be the key to the effectiveness of swinging soft hackles. In contrast, if there is not an apparent hatch, is there a pattern you like to swing when there is not anything much hatching? Yeah, the, there's a couple of soft tackles I really like. I think my personal all-time favorite soft tackle is just the starling and hurl. So it just has a peacock hurl body with a starling of blacks with that iridescent green sheen that starlings have feather on it. That's probably one of my all-time favorites. Bucky McCormick, who is the manager of Blue Ribbon Flies and helped a bunch with the book, you know, he went on and on and on about Nick Nicholas's Shaky Bealy, which he says is probably his all-time favorite fly to swing in the park, and, and that's one that I include the book and, and one that you certainly could. And I like to show fish options. So I think tying on a Shaky Bealy, a big size, maybe 10 Shaky Bealy, with maybe a 14 Starling and Hurl hanging off the back of it is a perfect thing. So you got one that's big and bright and shiny and one that's small and dark and muted and, and let the fish decide what they want that day. Yeah, he said uh, later in his questioning, he talked, he says, my favorite is a Nick's Soft Tackle from Blue Ribbon. Blue Ribbon's a famous fly shop in West Yellowstone. And he also asked, he says, do you ever add beads to flies in those scenarios to try to get deeper? with the soft tackles? Absolutely. Either add beads to them or sometime I'll drop them off of another fly, again, like a Pertagon, something that's designed to sink quickly and drop that wet fly off the back of it and maybe make your dropper a little bit longer. 
and and that will help get it to sync quickly as well. Okay. Okay. What um, any other flies that you'd like to highlight from the book that we haven't talked about yet? Sure. I I was just talking with somebody else and. And I think the very first fly in the book might be my favorite in the whole thing. Um, it's, oh, wow. it's a little fly called the Jaffe Special. There's a little lake just outside of Mammoth that's called Jaffe Lake. And Jaffe Lake is its really more like a pond. You know, I, I'm not the world's greatest swimmer, Roger, and, and I could swim across Jaffe Lake. So it's this little pond, and, and it's just full and full of brook trout. And Matt Minch was a fly tire that Richard Parks, the owner of Parks Fly Shopping in Gardner, Montana, first told me about. Matt Minch had, had tied flies for years for, for fly shops up in Gardner and, and for some guides and really never got the recognition he deserved. And he's the one who developed this Minch's Joffy Jewel. The Joffy Jewel, what I found to be so cool about it, it's a little marabou streamer. When my dad first learned of tie flies in the 1970s from his friend Steve, they only tied little marabou streamers. And they would have like a little mylar tinsel body, maybe a little silver tinsel rib, and then just a black marabou wing that went over it. And when my dad first showed me how to tie flies on my old herder's vice, that was the fly he showed me to tie. And it is exactly the same fly as Mint's Joffy Jewel. So I was growing up thousands of miles away in Pennsylvania, learning to tie flies to full little brook trout, and my dad and his friends were tying the exact same fly that a guy was designing in the 70s to catch the exact same fish, brook trout in Yellowstone National Park, with the exact same kind of fly. And I, I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it looks, you know, it's a, what, got a white underwing and a, a yellow overwing, and yeah, it just doesn't look like a fly you'd see in the fly shop today, right? Um, <laughs> For sure, unless you go to Park yeah. Fly Shop in Gardner. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. yeah, you're right. And so Matt told me on the telephone that the color scheme he uses for the Joffe Joel is the exact same colors as, as a Mickey Finn, you know, the real famous hair wing streamer that's been around forever. And that's why he's got that, that yellow overwing with a white underwing and the red tag. And he primarily fishes that for brook trout, is what you were saying, right? Or is it used for other? It, it'll work uh, lots of places in the park for various kinds of fish. In fact, everybody these days wants to, to just throw these giant streamers at the fish. And sometimes maybe these smaller, more subtle things might be a little more effective. I know I, I found that from time to time. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so well, even think, brown trout, rainbows, do all we did. Yeah, it's kind of like... Kelly Gallup had a lot to do with throwing those big articulated streamers for sure uh, around the park, right? You know, so uh, for sure he kind of made a name around those big hairy streamers, <laughs> and partially because they catch fish, <laughs> so, <laughs> right? Yeah, they they yeah. do, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you have a you know, um, it looks a little variation on it, but uh, Pat's rubber legs, customers, sure. yeah, <laughs> I mean that's an old favorite too, right? But oh, that yeah. one's a little bit different just in the body. Right? Yeah, it's, you know, Bill ties it with different colors. And, <laughs> and that entry in the book, it's sort of funny, just the way Bill and his friend Brad go fishing. You know, they share one rod, 
and they fish the exact same fly, and they go to the same hole night after night, and whoever's not fishing sits there on these rocks they call chairs, and you give the guy who's fishing a couple of minutes, you know, while you're sipping a beer or something like that, and if he's not catching fish in the proper amount of time they deem necessary, then you start to ridicule him. You know, and you're like, nice cast. <laughs> like, like, come on, am I ever going to fish? And I've gone and done this with them several times, and it is not peaceful, contemplative Yellowstone fishing, <laughs> but it's a whole lot of fun nonetheless. And, yeah, his rubber legs, he ties it. Obviously, like I said earlier, you're not allowed to use lead. So he adds some extra wraps of, of non-toxic wire to make sure the fly sinks. And even, you know... I sort of gravitate away from some of those bigger nymphs when the water dropped. I try to get more subtle, but I've seen that fly catch fish even in real low water conditions in September. So that's just, it's just a great pattern. And there's so many stoneflies crawling around in, in the creeks and rivers of yeah. Yellowstone that the fish see a ton of them. So I have to ask, why only one rod? Is it? Is it? <laughs> because they're weird. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> they're weird. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, Nobody wants I, I, to work too hard, right? I, you know. I, that might be it, Roger. Um, you know, why one rod? I, it's a very good question. I, how are you supposed to sit and criticize the other guy if you're too busy fishing? Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> I, and I think that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, as I go through the book, there are a lot of, as you spoke of earlier this evening, a lot of big kind of gaudy flies, right? Like um, yeah. Coachman True, uh, Goddard Caddis, Elk Hair Caddis, Chubby Sally. I mean, these are big, high-floating um, flies. Arabs, Green Drake, Hairwing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy. Even the, the yellow yummy that's in the book, which is, you know, basically just a yellow woolly bugger with legs. I was fishing the Lamar one summer and and learned a valuable lesson. I was there by myself. I, I wasn't guiding. I was just fishing. And, you know, when you get into late summer, the, the fish in the Lamar Valley and a lot of the creeks in the park, they become very concentrated because the water in some of the riffles are just too low to support uh, any, a fish of size. So they're, they're all congregating in these deep holes. I walked along this one braided channel, and there was a hole that was very, very deep. And it was the sun was just coming up. The fishing day was just getting started. And I tied on this bright yellow woolly bugger and threw it out there. And you could see this thing pulsing like a strobe light as it went through the water. And then these big Yellowstone cutthroats, like, you know, 18, 20-inch fish, three and four at a time start charging this thing and, and eating it. Just, just crazy. Like I don't know how many fish I pulled out of the hole, but it was there was a bunch of them, and I, I learned a valuable lesson. You know, with those Yellowstone cuts, everybody thinks you know I'm going to tie on a streamer when the water's high, or when the fish are spawning, or after a thunderstorm if the water's a little off color. But in the park, sometimes even particularly as you get later in the summer. All they really need is protection from overhead predators. So any place there's a deep cut or anything, streamer fishing on summer mornings can be really good. Hmm. Interesting. The other one that always, I've never fished this, but I always keep hearing about it, is this um, hippie stomper. 
and I guess I remember <laughs> the name because of the, the unique name, obviously. Uh, but it's kind of along the Chernobyl line, right, of high-floating, big, gaudy. It is. I, I would dare to say, if you can say hippie stomper is subtle at all, but I would say it's maybe slightly more subtle than a big chubby. And it's just another fly that when fish start to get tired of seeing so many chubbies that I'll put that on, you know, it can suspend a pretty decent nymph. It's one of those flies that when things start to get a little slow in the park that I'll tie on and, and fish usually respond pretty give well. Give it a shot. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Give it a shot. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, we're we're about out of time here. There was one person had asked about Phil Burden in North Carolina. He's got your books and uh, several of your books and wants to know how to get them signed by you. And he wanted to know if you're going to be at any of the fly fishing shows, I guess, out east this that's, year. That's a tough one. I I get asked this a bunch anymore. I, I sort of quit the shows probably 10 years ago when, when I was actually still uh, living back east. I quit the shows and yeah, I didn't okay. do them anymore. The best I can say is send me an email, weemerflyfishing at gmail.com. Send me an email and we'll see what we can figure out. Yeah, or he could come out to Yellowstone, go fishing, and drop by, right? You could volunteer for the Yellowstone Volunteer <laughs> Fly Fishing Program. There you go. Or, right? And, yeah. and we'll sign everything. There you go, Phil. Okay, we're all set. We figured that one out. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, we got to wrap things up here for the show. We will be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. And we'll be giving away a copy of Paul's latest book. Favorite Flies for Yellowstone National Park. See if Stackpole books. So stick with me here. Just another 30 seconds or so. We'll start giving these prizes away. Do you travel to fish? Medical and security emergencies happen. When they do, you can rely on Global Rescue, the world's leading membership organization, providing integrated medical, security, travel risk, and crisis response services to travelers worldwide. Without a Global Rescue membership, an emergency evacuation could cost you more than $100,000. That's why over 1 million members trust Global Rescue to get them home when the worst happens. Don't travel without Global Rescue. Memberships start at just $129. Learn more about Global Rescue's program. Just click on the Global Rescue icon in the footer of askaboutflyfishing.com or in the right-hand column um, on our homepage, and that will guide you to their website. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a few prizes. The winners for our drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you have a chance at winning some of these great prizes we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first thing we'll be giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. They're a great organization to support and be part of. So if you don't win tonight, go and join there anyway and join a great, great community out there in the fly fishing world. Let me get my database going here and... Okay, let's see. Eric Berry in Colorado. Eric Berry, you just won yourself membership to Fly Fishers International. So congratulations, Eric. And next, we'll give away a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. 
And if you want to learn more about Shroud Unlimited, go to tu.org, tu.org. And uh, again, another organization you should join. Our winner there is John Ingmar, John Ingmar in California. Congratulations, John, on winning that membership as well. So now we'll give away Paul's latest book, Favorite Flies for Yellowstone National Park, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Again, you can go to stackpolebooks.com and see what they have to offer out there. We also have that book on our homepage, Ask About Fly Fishing in the right-hand column, and a bunch of other of Paul's books there. He's been very prolific about writing fly fishing books and has a lot of great ones out there. So check, check all of them out. I'm sure you'll be impressed. So let's see here. Paul, uh, let me uh, clear my queue here, and I'm going to ask you to help me make sure that we get the right question, I mean the right answers here. Okay, let me get this. Give me something easy, Roger. I'm always nervous at this part in the show. Well, you're not supposed to answer it, remember. (laughs) I know, but I'm worried I won't remember what I said. Oh, geez. Okay. Uh, I did have one of my guests answer it one time, and I'm going, no, no, don't answer No. I know you know. Now you're telling me you don't, might not even know. That's really disturbing. Okay. That's uh, yeah. Okay. So I think I got my – there were a bunch of questions coming in on the Internet here we didn't get to. Uh, but anyway, what is Paul's favorite soft tackle fly? What's Paul's favorite soft tackle fly? Fly. Fly. <laughs> so uh, we have to give him a moment here. I need a scotch, which is what I'm going to have as soon as we're done here, Paul. <laughs> I finished my bourbon while we were doing this. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. I, I don't dare do that during the show because then I'll really be bumbling around here. But um, that's kind of an after-show tradition for me is to go have my scotch. So I'm checking the queue here and uh, – my daughter bought me this scotch. I don't know if you like scotch or not, but my daughter I bought do. me this scotch. Really, really peaty. I mean, tastes like it came out of a campfire almost. <laughs> but I like it. it. I like this one. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. No, I, I drink Laphroaig, and there's not too many things. That's what it is. That. That's what it is. is. It? <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. It's Laphroaig, yeah. Good stuff. And you... And when you get it, I think, is that the one where you also get to own one square foot of You absolutely liver? can. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, think it, I think it's a square inch, but okay. <laughs> but maybe if you combine yours with mine, we can go fishing over there. <laughs> it's worth a shot, Roger. I'm in. <laughs> uh, that's funny, LaFroy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, looks like we got a winner here. I think, and if you can remember the right answer. Uh, yeah, let's see here. Uh, what, I just lost it. Okay, there it is. Uh, looks like uh, David Myers in Morrison, Colorado. David Myers in Morrison, Colorado. He said Starling and Hurl. You got it? it. That's okay, it. Okay, good. All right. So we got a winner. <laughs> So, David, send me your shipping address. You can do it in the same box you just answered the question in, and we'll get that shipped out to you from Stackpole. And uh, enjoy. Get up to the park. You're not far away. So you'll have a good reason to go up there and use it now. And then, of course, volunteer <laughs> for Paul's group and get it signed. Yeah, yeah. So, absolutely. <laughs> 
So there's a plan. All right. Thanks for playing, guys and uh, gals. Paul, thank you again. Had so much fun tonight and uh, with you again and sharing your knowledge of fishing and fly fishing and Yellowstone. Really appreciate you being with us tonight. Thanks so much for having me, Roger. I always look forward to it. Oh, great. Thanks for being on. Hopefully you've all found a podcast uh, archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line menu. In that archive, you'll find over 365 shows, which you can search by keyword, keyword phrase, like Madison River, Yellowstone, Tarpon, whatever you're looking for. And I'm sure you'll find something of interest that you'll enjoy and learn from. Our next broadcast will be December 21st, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. And that's where I'm going to interview Pat Dorsey. And we're going to talk about go-to flies for Colorado. So Pat is well-known and respected professional guide in Colorado. He considers the Blue, South Platte, North Fork of the South Platte, Colorado, and Williams Fork Rivers as his home waters. And has spent many years fishing and guiding them. Join us to explore the go-to flies you need for Colorado and how to effectively fish them. Be sure to add this upcoming show to your calendar. Just below Pat's photo on our homepage, there's an Add to Calendar button. Click on that, add it to your favorite calendar, and you'll be all set for the next show. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Stackpole Books, Musky Town, Global Rescue, Gills Fly Fishing International uh, for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.